0: Well, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1? If you're using one of the red Story Church Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1 is on page 588. 1 Peter chapter 1. My two oldest kids love to get mail. They love when they get mail or when mom and dad get mail, even if it's junk mail. They love it. And they especially love it if if there's like a letter addressed to them. They get to open up and read it from grandparents or something. Or like when an Amazon package gets delivered and it says to Theo or Julia. they love it. They love getting mail. They love, they love writing letters too. They'll often just draw pictures and scribble down and we'll mail them as letters to their grandparents. They love writing mail. They'll play mail. They've got a mail carrier outfit and toys and they'll deliver pieces of paper as mail to Sarah and I around the house. They just, they love getting mail and letters. I, I feel like that love of mail Uh, we've lost it. I think in in our world of digital communication, we've lost the joy and the art of writing and receiving letters. You know, with the the fast pace of a text message or the ease of an email or the, the sort of the comfortability of a FaceTime call, we've lost the art of sitting down with a pen and paper or a computer and writing out a letter of encouragement to someone. Maybe some of you have held on to letters that have been significant for you in the past. I know Sarah and I have a box of keepsakes, um, and among other things in that box are letters that we have written to one another in the many years that we've been married, and we're getting to know each other before that. We have cards for our anniversaries and birthdays from one another in there. We hold on to those things because we want to, every once in a while, take it out and read it and remember and just sort of be encouraged by the love that is coming in those letters. We're beginning a new series this morning that will take us through the summer in 1 Peter. And I want you to know right from the beginning, this is not a book to study This is a letter to read and remember and be encouraged by. This is Peter's letter that he wrote to Christians who were living in these cities and provinces of uh, what was then called Asia Minor, we know today as Turkey. And these were letters to encourage them to remain faithful and steadfast in their knowledge of God's love for them in the midst of a difficult circumstance. You see, in that time, in many places in the uh, ancient world, as the early church was beginning to grow, there arose persecution from their neighbors. Remember, this is the Roman Empire. Uh, There was persecution. There was the, the pagan religion and cultural practices all around them. They were facing hostility and pressure all over the place. Peter writes this letter to them to encourage them to stand firm in the midst of pressure and fear and doubt. And, and who else, who else is better to encourage us in this than Peter? Remember, Peter was the one who first confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus said, Peter, you on this rock, on this confession, on your confession of faith, I will build my church. But then Peter, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed and put on trial because of fear and pressure and doubt, denied even knowing Jesus. But then in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. Peter has been restored to his place, and now he is writing letters to encourage steadfast faith, commitment to the Lord, especially in difficult times. That's my hope for this series, is that we would be encouraged by this letter to stand steadfast in our faith, especially in a changing world world. As we look at this passage this morning, we're just going to look at his, really his opening greeting, the first two verses, not even to the introduction yet, because even in his greeting, Peter's going to forecast or foreshadow everything he's going to talk about. This is like, he's laying the foundation for everything he's going to say, and he wants us to know from the beginning, there are two important things that you must know in order to understand how to be faithful in these trying times. Two things. You have to know where are you and who are you. Where are you and who are you? Those are my two points this morning. You'll see the answers in the bulletin if you want to follow along. Where are you? Peter says you are exiles in a strange place. And who are you? Well, you are God's chosen chosen people precious in his sight. Let's read this passage and unpack those two points together. First Peter chapter one, verses one and two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this letter that you have inspired. Father, we pray now in your spirit, would you illumine this text to us? Would you open up our eyes and our hearts as we bear before you our deepest needs and when you comfort our hearts with the truth of your unfailing, unconditional, never giving up love that is ours through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So first, where are you? Peter tells us in verse 2, we are exiles living in a strange world. He's writing this letter to exiles in the dispersion. He's talking about these Christians who are now spread out over the Roman Empire, many of whom uh, were Gentiles before who were not born into the Jewish faith, who have now come to know Jesus, but they're spread out over the Roman Empire, and he calls them exiles. Exile, it's a word that means foreigner or stranger. It's a word to describe a sojourner, someone who is traveling through or passing through, someone who's living in a place temporarily, not their home, Sometimes it's used like a refugee, someone who's been displaced from their home and now feels unwelcome. Peter says you need to remember that you are in exile in a strange world. He's not saying, remember that your ultimate home is heaven. Just bear through the pain. This isn't your ultimate home. You're just passing through. He's not saying that. If we actually look at how the Bible talks about our ultimate destination, if you read the last chapters of the book of Revelation, Christians are not destined to go someplace else. We actually see that the ultimate destination is a restored and renewed creation. Like, we don't belong here, but really, this is our ultimate home. Peter isn't saying... You're exiles because you're just passing through this world and soon you'll enter into the world to come. No, this is our home, but it feels strange. Peter is saying, you are living your lives as Christians and your experience of the world around you is like that of a sojourner. Your experience is that you feel like you don't belong in this world. Remember that you are exiles because of your faith in Jesus. We don't belong. We don't have the same rights as the citizens of this world. We are outsiders. We are living on the edge of culture. Because we are not truly at home with the Lord, we will never feel like we are at home in this world right now, have you ever felt that way? I've talked a number of times about how my wife and I lived in India. We were missionaries for about ten months after we got married, and um, I, we've shared a number of stories. But you know, the overall experience of that really shaped us. For the first few days and weeks, it was it was a burden to get around and learn all the new things and learn where do we buy groceries, or uh, where can we go out to eat. A lot of our problems were focused on how are we gonna eat. Um, but then after a while, we, we became familiar with it. We, we got our visas all checked out, we knew how to get from our house to the grocery store, we knew how to get from our house to the colleges that we were working on. Uh, we became familiar with it. But even though we were there for 10 months, It never felt like home. We became really familiar with it, and we learned how to live there, but it never felt like home. We always felt like an outsider, and not just because we were white in India. I mean, there were plenty of other um, expatriates that lived there and felt like home. We never felt like home. We always felt like an outsider, Peter is saying, for Christians living in this world, your experience will be like that. You will always feel like an exile. We will always be outsiders. We will always live our lives on the margins of the culture around us. I think this is such a good thing for us to remember today the world is changing. I was listening to a podcast this week from two pastors in Colorado that started the podcast during the pandemic, and it's titled, Everything Just Changed. Isn't that true? Like, in the last three years, so much of our world has changed. Our culture, our institutions, our trust in institutions how we relate to one another, how we work with one another, everything has just changed. But it's been changing for a while. And if we look at the history of the church, especially in the West, everything's been changing for a while. Christianity in many places in the West, and increasingly so, is moving further and further towards the margins of society. And this is certainly felt more in other places than others. Like here in Mayfield Heights, we're surrounded by three large Catholic parishes and most of our neighbors have some connection or contact with or influenced by uh, the church. But in most of the Western world, Christianity is being pushed further and further to the margins of society. Fewer and fewer people are identifying as Christians. More and more people are living their lives now without any personal contact with Christians or the church as a whole. Our society is shifting. And I'm not saying well, we better get back to the good old days. I'm just saying, remember, we are exiles in this world. We've always been exiles in this world. In the first century, Peter's writing to Christians who felt like their whole culture and community was against them. I think we're beginning to feel a little bit like what they felt all the time. I'm sure everyone in this room could share stories of feeling like the world is pressing in against us because of our faith. Everyone here, I'm sure, has a story to share about how the attitude of your coworkers and employers are changing against our historic Orthodox Christian beliefs whether in the workplace or the schools or in government. I'm sure everyone in this room can share a story of how within your extended family, or maybe even your close family, you have relational tensions because your Christian values bring you one way and other people question those and doubt those and say, that's wrong. We're all experiencing it. The church is being shifted to the edges of society. Listen to this quote. One journalist and and, um, writer on this subject says this, Clearly, there is a new narrative, a a post-Christian narrative, that is animating large portions of our society. The number of adults in the U.S. who do not attend church has nearly doubled since the 1990s. Over 3,500 churches are closing their doors every year, and attendance, and the attendance of more than 80% of those that remain have plateaued or are declining. The combined impact of the information age, this postmodern thought, globalization, racial ethnic pluralism that has seen the demise of the grand American story, it has also displaced the historic role that the church has played in that story. As a result, we are seeing the marginalization of the institution of the church. We are being pushed to the edges of society. Peter told us 2,000 years ago, because of our faith, we will be like exiles in this world. We know that to be true. This summer, as we study the book of the letter of 1 Peter, Peter is going to teach us and instruct us and encourage us, how do we live faithfully in that changing world? And not only how do we live faithfully in it, how do we live missionally and actually seek to love our neighbor and grow the church even as we're pushed to the margins? There's too much to unpack, that's why we're doing this whole series, but one thing I want us to draw from this is if we are indeed living as exiles in a strange world, we must, as a church, adopt a missionary mindset with our neighbors. We have to adopt a missionary mindset to how we look outside our windows. As we drive up and down Mayfield Road, as we have cookouts with our neighbors in the backyard, as we engage with our neighbors walking their dogs in the front, we have to adapt to a missionary mindset. Friends, we live in a strange place. The world is changing around us. We have to adapt. Not compromising our convictions of truth, but recognizing that gone are the days that our neighbors know anything about Jesus. Gone are the days that we can expect neighbors and strangers to just walk in our door on Sunday morning. Gone is the day that the story that people were living included God. We are living in a strange place. So we must become missionaries to our neighbors. Peter wants us to see, where are you? You are exiles in a strange place. But then he moves on to tell us who we are. And that's so important. Because in this changing tide of society, what is becoming so increasingly important is defining yourself. Is coming up with an identity for yourself. One that's based upon your achievements or your uh, your, uh, your career, your family, your sexuality, your money. What is so important today is defining your identity. And, and this is not anything new. Because right from the beginning, Peter reminds us who we are. He says, you are God's chosen people. You are the elect Exiles. You are precious in his sight. That identity is rooted in what God has done, not on what we have done. You are God's chosen people, precious in his sight. And he breaks this down for us in in three sort of proposals. Proposals. They're Trinitarian. Our identity is rooted in this Trinitarian salvation that we have from God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First, he says, you are chosen, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father. According to the foreknowledge of the Father. We, we touched on this a bit back in January. What does it mean for God to, in his foreknowledge, choose us? And I said that that foreknowledge, we typically think of knowing something beforehand like this. Um, for example, I, I love watching movies, and my wife enjoys watching movies too, but only particular movies. And uh, I'll show her trailers of movies um, and see will she like this or not. And every once in a while, I'll run across a movie and I'll know the actors in it. I'll know the plot. I'll know the themes. I'll know so much about the movie that I guarantee, Sarah, you're going to love this. And I'm, those times I'm right. There's other times where I know for Cheryl, she's not going to like this at all. But it's my foreknowledge of Who's in the movie? How the movie plays out? Is it a good movie, bad movie? It's my foreknowledge of those things that I know whether or not Sarah will like it. That is not how God has chosen us. His foreknowledge is not that. God did not stand before the foundation of the world and look out and see you're going to be a good Christian. You're going to be a faithful follower. You're going to be a devoted disciple. You're not. That's not how he chose. He didn't look at who would amount to anything great or who wouldn't. He didn't look and say, well, this person's going to sin a lot versus that person. For God to foreknow is for him to forelove. Because to know someone in this sense is to love someone, to deeply care for them, and to choose to commit to them. For Peter to say that we have been chosen by God according to his foreknowledge means that we are chosen unconditionally. That he has chosen us just because he has chosen to love us. Here's why that is such good news. If he has chosen us because we're good, if he has chosen us because we do good things for his kingdom, if he has chosen us because we're better than our neighbor, what happens when we mess up? What happens when we're not good? What happens when we don't do great things for him? We question his love. We fear it going away. We fear that as our confession prayed, we fear that he'll take the spirit away from us. But friends, don't you see Peter is reminding us in this changing world, the father loves you unconditionally. There's nothing you could do to earn it and there's nothing you could do that would make it go away. The Father has chosen you unconditionally. Second, he says, we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification by the Holy Spirit. We typically think of that word, sanctification, as the ongoing process of being conformed to the image of God. We talk about justification being the once for all time declaration of being holy, and sanctification is the process by which the Spirit conforms us to that holiness. And that is true, that's not how Peter's using the word here. Because sanctification by itself just means to be set apart. To be holy is to be set apart from the ordinary. To be consecrated as something different. Like when I, when I say the words of institution over our elements of the Lord's Supper, I'm setting them apart from common use for a distinct purpose. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us in that way, sets us apart in that way, consecrates us for a purpose. I like to think of um, growing up I had this. We don't have this now. Growing up, uh, my parents had a cabinet in our dining room, and in that cabinet behind the glass was uh, fine china, plates and bowls and cups and dishes, and those were things set apart. They weren't our normal plates or dishes. They were set apart for a specific function, a specific purpose. Peter is saying, don't you realize that the Spirit now has come into your life and has set you apart from the world? Yes, you live in the world, but you've been set apart from the world. The Spirit has sanctified you, has made you holy. This he did when, this is the new birth, that we talk about, the the born again. This is the new life that we have in the Spirit. We've been born now to a living hope. That's ours because the Spirit has come into our lives and set us apart. He set us apart for a specific occasion. What is that occasion? Well, if we look at the history of God's people, You know, if we think of where else do we hear about God choosing a people and setting them apart for a purpose? We have to think about Israel being redeemed out of Egypt. And as they wander through the wilderness to their promised land, God calls them and gives them the Ten Commandments. But this whole scene is God saying, you are my precious people. I have called you out of the world. I have purchased you. I have redeemed you. You are mine, and I am giving you a purpose. I'm setting you apart for a function. You are to be the light of my glory amongst the nations. I'm giving you this law so that you can follow it and obey it. And as you follow it and obey it, your neighbors are going to behold my glory. Set apart, called for a purpose. Israel, obey the law, and your neighbors will know who I am. But now Peter says, Yes, you've been chosen. Yes, you've been sanctified, you've been set apart for a purpose, but it's not obedience to the law. What is it? Our text says we've been called and chosen and set apart for the obedience to Jesus Christ. Now we are called to follow him, to obey him. No longer do we obey the the law in that regard, but we follow the law of love that Jesus gave to us. Jesus himself says to his disciples that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Jesus commands his disciples saying, now go into all of the world teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Our new Occasion, our new purpose, our new um, meaning in life set apart is to be obedient to Jesus Christ, to follow his example of love, to go into the world as missionaries for his kingdom. Now, if I ended there, That would be a burden. If if I said Peter's letter is just telling us to go and do more, well, that would be just another weight on our backs. We couldn't do it. Remember what happened to Israel when they were given this charge? They failed. They couldn't do it. They failed over and over and over again. They got weary. They were tired. They couldn't do it. But Peter concludes his greeting with the reminder that our identity is not just that we are chosen by the Father, not just that we've been set apart by the Spirit to do wonderful things, He says, you have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. You have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. What's he mean by that? On Mount Sinai, when God gave his people the law, he said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my special people. Now follow this law and the world will know my glory. When the people of God gathered at the base of the mountain and they all shouted out with one voice saying this, everything you have said, we will obey. And then Moses took an animal. He slaughtered it as a sacrifice. He took the blood of that animal and sprinkled it on the people and said, Today you have been sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. It was a confirmation between God and the people that said, We will obey you, God. And if we do not obey you, may it be to us like it has been done to this animal. They were confirming their obedience to the covenant. But they failed. And we fail. We fail this all the time. We're not loving the way that Jesus calls us to love. We don't obey the Great Commission the way that Jesus calls us to obey the Great Commission. But Peter reminds us that the success of this, the success of our faithfulness, the success of this mission does not rely upon you. Yes, with the covenant with Moses, the people of God failed and God needed to do something about it. But friends, we have a new covenant. We have a new promise that God has made with us where he says, even though you have failed, I will send my son who will do everything I ask of him. He will perfectly fulfill this mission He will love perfectly. He will obey perfectly. He will do everything that I have called you to do. And his perfect obedience and love can be yours. He made a new covenant with us. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, on the night before his crucifixion, that secured this covenant, he had a meal. And in that meal, they remembered the slaughter of an animal. And as Jesus gave the meal to his disciples, he said, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Peter wants us to get this right, right from the beginning, that our identity is wrapped up in the finished work of Jesus, who fulfilled this covenant for us and has now sprinkled us with the blood of that new covenant. So that when we're tired, when we're exhausted, when we fail, when we sin, we can go to him again and again with the assurance that Jesus has gone before us. He has sprinkled us clean. Let's pray.